think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hi, I'm Nate Swick. Welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I was reminded this week that birding is difficult and has been for hundreds of years. The reason for this perhaps self-evident revelation, a painting. A painting that was in the news recently, purportedly from Egypt, about 4,600 years ago, called the Midum Geese. Not the medium geese, which is how I always read it in my head. Midum, the I, on the other side of the D. It was originally found in 1871 by Egyptologist Luigi Vasali in a tomb located near the Midum Pyramid, supposedly this tomb belonged to the pharaoh Snefru's son. The fresco, the mural, was removed and is now located in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. So this, this painting is considered the Mona Lisa for Egyptian art, because we have to compare everything to the Mona Lisa. And it depicts six geese of three species. So two of them are gray-legged geese. Two of them are greater white-fronted geese. Both of those species that would probably have been familiar to Egyptians at the time. They regularly winter as far south as modern-day Israel and Jordan. Probably would not have been uncommon in the much milder climate of Egypt of 5,000 years ago. In fact, Egyptologists, this is a cool tangent, have learned a ton about the historic wildlife of North Africa from ancient Egyptian art. The people of that civilization were inveterate note-takers, amazing documentarians. Archaeologists love the Egyptians, very detail-oriented. That third goose pair, however, is where things get interesting because they are evidently and have been considered such for a very long time, red-breasted geese, which would not have been found in North Africa. In fact, remains of the species have not been found at any Egyptian archaeological sites. And in fact, the Midum geese images are not an exact match for red-breasted goose, which is weird because the other species are, are really accurately documented, but they're these red-breasted geese, they're, they're close enough. But that discrepancy, that difference between the illustrated geese and the actual goose, led paleontologist Anthony Romilio of the University of Queensland recently, this week, to suggest that these red-breasted-ish geese represent a brand new, heretofore undescribed species of goose. And I want to make clear that this guy is a paleontologist. He's not a birder. Because my read, as a veteran of many bird record submissions and eBird rarity notes, is that these geese were painted by someone who kind of remembered what red-breasted goose looks like, but didn't have one like right in front of them to reference. I don't know if you've ever tried to draw a bird, say a blue jay, uh, or something along those lines from memory. It's it's actually really easy to forget the precise locations of the pattern of blue, black, and white. And these geese, it, it looks like that's what's going on here. But it still doesn't entirely explain how an Egyptian artist would even have a memory of a species that doesn't generally get any closer to Egypt than southeastern Europe, the western side of the Black Sea. 
which makes the next shoe to drop maybe uh, a bit predictable. It's a fake. Or maybe it is. Another Egyptologist has suggested that the fact that these red-breasted geese were unlikely to make it to Egypt is a reason to suggest that the thing was forged. There you go. Natural history knowledge uh, applied in art history. Um, maybe they were forged by Vasali himself, who in addition to being an Egyptologist was also a portrait painter. Very suspicious. It all feels very stringy to me. In fact, I've actually heard stories from the birding world that are, are very remarkably similar uh, to this one, stories of falsified records, faked photographs, though they tend not to play out over hundreds of years. It goes to show that maybe there's nothing new under the sun. Maybe the Egyptology community could use some birders to sniff out this hoax. We have done it before. On the show this week, another pileated woodpecker story from Charlie Hess, currently in Taiwan. Don't worry, it's not a stringy story. He is originally from the U.S. He does have some experience with pileated woodpeckers. As a side note, this is a bit of a, a podcast crossover. Charlie hosts the Naturally Adventurous podcast with Ken Barons, and yours truly was recently a guest, which was a really good time. Lots of fun international nature stories there, FYI, if you're into that. But first, let's talk Nighthawks, the mysterious bird of the dusk with the spectacular migration. The appropriately named Ellie Knight has been working with Nighthawks to tell a story about migratory connectivity. It's really neat stuff. She'll join me after this week's Raybirds. This is your Rarebird Focus for the last part of February, first little bit of March 2021. We haven't talked much about Texas here because the good birds have been so consistent over the period, but this has quietly become one of the most impressive winners on record for a state that has had some very good ones. There have been a great many North Mexico rarities sticking around for many weeks in the lower Rio Grande Valley, multiple crimson-collared grosbeaks, multiple blue buntings, and now two golden-crowned warblers in Cameron County with new bird at Resaca de la Palma found in the wake of a yellow-faced grassquit discovery. A bit of a Patagonia picnic table effect, assuming you believe it exists. Perhaps the most remarkable record thus far comes from that cohort. A blue bunting was discovered this week in Bexar County, Texas. That is San Antonio, which is about 140-odd miles from the border. This is the farthest north record this winter, but not the farthest ever. The very first ABA area blue bunting came from southwest Louisiana in 1979 and remains the farthest outlier for the species. This phenomenon, along with the recent deep freeze in Texas and northern Mexico, is interesting because there is historical precedence for this kind of thing, this kind of weather driving vagrancy to south Texas. The highlands of Tamaulipas are quite close, and when cold temperatures hit, the birds especially fruit and insect-eating birds, have to move down slope, and occasionally that means they cross into Texas. Using the San Antonio blue bunting as a marker, if we look 140-odd miles into Mexico, suddenly we are in the land of elegant euphonium, blue cap motmot, spot-crowned woodcreeper, squirrel cuckoo, keelbill toucan. It is a list that gets very interesting very fast, so something to keep out for on the southern tier of the ABA area. No first records this week, but we round up the entire rarity landscape every Friday morning with ABA's Rare Bird Alert at aba.org slash RBA. You can also join our Rare Bird Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash ABA Rare or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. In the last few years, we have learned so much about migratory birds using GPS devices, finally seeing where they go in the non-breeding part of the year and how they get there. It seems every year that new species is added to the role, and this year the amazing common nighthawk gets its turn in the spotlight. 
Ellie Knight is a researcher at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. She is leading an initiative to describe the migration of common nighthawks, subject of a paper recently published in the journal Ecography. She's with me now to talk about it. Welcome, Ellie. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you, Nate? Doing very well. Um, so why are common nighthawks such an interesting study species? Yeah, that's a great question. I, uh, I, sort of, I often describe nighthawks and, and the whole family of nightjars as sort of like the, the final frontier of ornithology. Um, we really don't know a lot about the whole group of species. And, and there's a handful of reasons for that. Um, I mean, the first is kind of obvious. They're, they're nocturnal. Um, and so I think that they often just get overlooked because we, we focus on the dawn period in ornithology a lot of the time. But they're also, nighthawks in particular are, are really quite difficult to study. Um, and I think that's part of what makes them so interesting um, is that, that challenge. So it, I, I mean, anyone who's ever observed a nighthawk uh, knows that these are incredibly aerial birds. They spend, you know, they spend most of their waking hours up in the air, or at least the males do, um, you know, often 100 meters off the ground. And, and it's, that, it's that aerial nature, it's that mobility that makes them really hard yeah. to study. Uh, they're hard to catch they're hard to track um and and they can they can range uh very far quite quickly and um i think i think that makes them interesting but also also difficult yeah is there is there a particular ecological story that they're really well served to tell Mm, what do you mean can you they you know they're they're insect eaters they have this really long migration does studying nighthawks tell you anything sort of more broadly about the state of bird populations or conservation or anything like that. Gotcha. Yeah. I, so I think, I, I, I think we hope in some ways, certainly, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think we'll know that the aerial insectivores are, are not doing very well right now. They're um, decliner, declining faster than any other group of birds in, yeah. in Canada. And, and I think that's true for the United States as well. Um, and so we, we do hope that w- we can glean some things about um, the pressures on that that group of birds from studying nighthawks. Uh, but it, you know, in other ways, they're they're not necessarily indicative of of some of these other um, uh, birds that they share this foraging guild with. I mean, that they, especially in the boreal forest, where I spend a lot of time studying them, they're they're actually a, a post disturbance specialist. Um, so hmm. they come into post fire areas. They used recently harvested areas, forest uh, yeah. forestry harvested areas, um, and so you know they're in in that regard. They're one of a few species that that actually like anthropogenic disturbance. Um, and so it, I think it, it depends on on which part of their ecology you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but certainly. Uh, some of the the steep declines that we're seeing across much of their range, you know, I, I think, um, you know, uh, the declines, observed declines in air, in aerial insects, are certainly one of the big potential causes for those declines, and uh, I think that that's something that that certainly is shared with other uh, other birds. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you you bring up the sort of the fact that they they kind of take to anthropogenically altered landscapes because when i when i think of common nighthawks at least where i live here in the southeast they like the the pine plantations like the mm-hmm. places where loblolly pines are grown for i mean all sorts of things which is so weird because they frequently they're like a lot of times the only nesting bird in those places mm-hmm. which is so strange to me that they like well they like the fire stuff as well in the boreal yeah that that might be just they also just really like pine 
Yeah, that's, that's something that's starting to crop up across the range. It's true in the boreal. I've seen it down in Florida as well. Um, and that sort of pine scrub. I, I think, that, and and this is something that's that seems to be cropping up across in the whole family as well. The nitrates they they mm-hmm. do like these um, really arid areas um, yeah. for nesting, and whether that's because you know, I mean. We have to remember that these are birds that nest in scrapes. And, and honestly, I think scrape is a generous term for the night. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they'll like move a little bit of dirt out of the way, but they, they're literally just laying two eggs on the ground. And so these arid sites where there's recent disturbance or, you know, the, the pine, pine grows in arid soils, mm-hmm. uh, mineral soils. So these are great places to lay eggs where you have good drainage. Obviously, yeah. you can't lay two eggs in a, in a marsh. Yeah. on the ground um you know and the, you know potentially too because these are ground nesting birds these arid areas or recently disturbed areas that um don't have a lot of primary productivity you know maybe there's less nest predation there because mm-hmm. less um sort of less mammals less mm-hmm. other species through other species um so yeah and and then also the aerial the sort of aerial foraging approach um yeah. these recently disturbed areas have very little vegetation and so perhaps they're using those open spaces to facilitate their sort of constant flight uh, yeah. huh. that's interesting yeah they are sort of similar and because we have chucks and chuckles widows and mm-hmm. whippoorwills in the yeah. same sort of places yeah. doing similar sort of things though they're you know they don't go as high as the nighthawks yeah. and they're they're obviously other differences as well they're not, they're not nearly as aerial as the mm-hmm. nighthawks are though they are pretty aerial yeah um, it's 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 amazing to me that the same species I think of nesting down here is the same species that's nesting in, in the boreal forest of Alberta. That range is so broad. Mm-hmm. There are not too many species that are like that. No, I mean, as far as we know, it's not a, a continuous breeding range, but the, right. there is a breeding population in Panama, um, huh. and they go all the way north up to the Yukon. Um, so it it really is a massive breeding range, and and that's one of the reasons that we chose this species to to really dig into migratory connectivity as a, a tool for um, sort of moving forward with conservation of, of focal species is, is because of that huge range. We could look at, you know, we can really um, spread out the, the deployment of GPS tags and, and look yeah. at connectivity across, across the continent. So how did you attach these GPS tags to the birds? You mentioned earlier that nighthawks are actually kind of a pain to catch. How do you yeah. capture a nighthawk? So they are, they are pain. We have a few different approaches, but the, the primary one that, um, that we used was actually, um, developed by Janet Ng, who, uh, oh, the recent podcast guest, actually. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah. So Janet studied Nighthawks for her master's at University of Virginia with Mark Brigham. And this was probably, oh gosh, 10 years ago now. And she had to, she was tracking Nighthawks, looking at, at home range use and, and habitat use. And so she had to figure out how to catch them. And so it turns out that they are quite territorial if mm-hmm. if you provide cues in the right location. So the males are, are quite territorial. So if you use an audio lure and you use a decoy in the right location, um, mm-hmm. they, they get quite aggressive. Um, so we use an audio lure of, of an individual calling and booming. Um, and then we have a, a decoy whose name is Maurice, named by Janet. <laughs> um, he's sort of like, uh, you know, those... 2D foam, like styrofoam airplanes that kids uh-huh. play with. He's like, yes. that. so you just like fit the wings through the body and 
put a white stripe at the end and um, yeah, suddenly they, you have a Nighthawk. <laughs> throw patch, wing patches, tail patch, and that. But he's got like big, broad white patches and that makes him, Maurice is very handsome. He's a threat. <laughs> um, yeah. The trick is because Nighthawks are nocturnal, they have these massive eyes, they're visual foragers, they can see the net. Like, they're not dumb, they know it's there. So the trick is putting Maurice in the net and this is that's what janet figured out uh, during her masters um and so they, they just get so angry about this incredibly handsome bird in their territory um that they try and get at him and, and then they eventually make a mistake and end up in the mist net that way um, i've actually had birds like knock maurice out of the net wow yeah so so we catch them that way um there are a couple other approaches spotlighting is is a big one so the whole family of nitrars really um they like to roost on gravel roads during the breeding season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can spotlight them that way uh, with a truck and a, and a net. Um, but the majority of our birds were caught using this sort of target territorial um, lure and decoy approach. And so you, you capture the bird, you have it in your hand. Mm-hmm. What, what are they like in the hand? Because, you know, certain birds have certain characteristics when you're banding them or holding them. And, then, and Nighthawk is such a weird shaped bird. Like it's all wing. It uh, is. I imagine it would be kind of difficult to to handle and get the get the geolocator backpack on. Yeah, so the, it, they're really neat in the hand. I mean, they're I yeah. Um, yeah that, anyone who's ever held one, it, it really is its own experience. They um, they growl, which <laughs> I I mean, I could try and make the sound for you. Uh, well, if you're gonna offer, <laughs> so they're like. A, Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and but you can tell when they're going to do it because they kind of they kind of like stiffen up and then yeah. rattle and and sort of move their wings. Um, they're they, they're quite aggressive in the hand, to be honest, which makes sense. I mean, that's that's sort of their persona hmm. um, for nest defense as well. They are, yeah, they really are. They're all wing and tail, um, and they are incredibly feathery. So all of the nightjars just have a ton of mm-hmm. uh, body feathering, um, and so we do. They do actually lose a little bit of those body feathers during handling, and we've been collecting those for other analyses. Putting the harness on is a two-person endeavor. Um, so one person to hold the bird and one person to put the harness on, just because they are they're bigger. Yeah, and so you know, um, one person holds them, and then and then the other person puts the harness on. And it, we use a, a backpack harness, mm-hmm. but it's it's modified. It's kind of like a, a mini raptor harness. Um, and again, this was sort of a on the fly approach that Janet adapted when we were first putting tags out in 2015. Um, and so it's yeah, it's essentially like a wing loop harness, but then the the two um, straps of the backpack are brought together at the center of the chest of the keel. Uh, and that's just to keep the straps away from the wings because they're because they're so aerial, they're incredibly sensitive to any restriction of their wing mobility. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really important to to make them feel like they can fly free. Yeah. So when you started getting that locator data, what surprised you about what you were getting back? So we actually so the project was actually in two stages. Um we've we ran a, a preliminary component in, in twenty fifteen. Uh, led by Janet Ng, um, where we, we were testing the tags. We wanted to see if these new Argos GPS tags worked for this species and, and just worked in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just put tags out in one population in northern Alberta. And so we, we actually, that was a, an earlier version of the firmware of these tags where we just got all the data at once. It uploads to the Argos uh, satellite and then and you just get this big dump. 
you know, we actually kind of had a, a preview of, of where these birds were going and the, and the route uh, that they were taking. Um, but what was neat about the about getting the sort of range wide data in 2017, which we actually um, got three points at a time, so that the tags we used in 2017 used a second version of the firmware where they would just take a couple points and then and then attempt to transmit. And and I think the first thing that, that really jumped out was during fall migration, where you know we had tags out all across North America, these mm-hmm. and eleven different populations, and um, all the birds that we tagged congregated along the Mississippi Flyway. Um, they they just had mm-hmm. one route, um, which was certainly different from from what we had expected. So we even had, you know, we had one individual that was tagged uh, near Vancouver Island in, in British Columbia. And it literally flew 3,000 kilometers due east uh, to hmm. Mississippi Flyway before turning south. Huh, that's wild. That, I think that was one of the coolest things. And we talk about this a lot in the paper, too. I mean, that, that common route is responsible for the low migratory connectivity of the species. Um, and, and it's different from what we see in a lot of North American species with with wide-ranging breeding ranges is you know often you have a couple different routes have a, a migratory divide we saw you know i think that the purple martin migratory connectivity work shows a migratory divide uh, and we don't we don't have that in nighthawks they've all got this this one sort of relatively broad front migration um to the mississippi flyway and then and then across the gulf and um down through a narrow shoot in the Andes, and then I, they kind of spread out over their their uh, wintering range in the Amazon and Cerrado biomes. It's really wild. It goes to show the importance of protecting those sorts of habitats that they use on the Gulf Coast that they're kind of essentially staging at, I guess, before they make that big jump across the Gulf. For sure, yeah. So we, I mean, unfortunately, because we were using these tags that transmit to the Argo satellite, which was key for this project because nighthawks are nearly impossible to recapture. Yeah. Um, huh. But it, but uh, it means that um, the temporal resolution of our data is fairly low. So we only have points every four to ten days, uh, just because it, it takes so much battery power to push the, those points to the Argo satellite. Um, so we don't we don't have that much information on stopovers, but but um, certainly we you know we see that for other migratory species that those those Gulf regions are are really important for. Um, precision and, and perhaps you know we don't know but perhaps it's one of the drivers for all these species congregating along the mississippi flyway is that, that there's you know there's um good resources to fuel that cross gulf journey um you know and and that was one of the things that came out of the paper was that um we think we're seeing that in the opposite direction so we did see a small mm-hmm. peak um but just very distinct peak in, in migratory connectivity in this northern region of south america um, Oh, really? Where it looks like they're probably staging before they cross the Gulf in the other direction. So coming back uh, to North America during spring migration. And that's a region that has been identified as potentially important for stopovers of other neotropical migrant species. It was in a paper by Nick Bailey and colleagues in 2017 that, that identified that region as potentially important. Yeah, it certainly makes intuitive sense. That For they would sure. do the same thing on the way back, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it also fits with what we know about migration, where you know fall migration is often slower or longer mm-hmm. because there's not as much of a rush to get down to the wintering grounds. But right. spring migration, the timing of it is really important because, um, you know, the, the the birds that arrive earlier, the males that arrive earlier, and this is true of pasterns. It may not be true of nightjars. The male pasterns that arrive earlier, they get better territories, they get better mates, they get more resources, and they, you know they have higher breeding productivity. 
Um, and so that, that spring migration is often, the timing was really critical. And, and yeah. we see some indication of that in the Nighthawk data, you know, and again, the driver of it is unknown at this point. It may just be that the winds are great during spring migration, but we do see a lot of individuals taking off from Columbia and migrating all the way to Texas in a single wow. shot. Wow. So that's, that's a 3000 kilometer, um, Flight. Yeah, yeah. I want to circle back to a thing you said. You can't recapture them again once they're fooled by Maurice. They they, they won't be fooled again. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of reasons for that one. One, I think, <laughs> I think net savviness is a thing. And yeah. I mean, I've spent a lot of time trying to recapture Nighthawks for this project, but also for some of my other work um, in Northern Alberta. They certainly seem to get hip to the game, but it's that mobility that's the problem. Yeah. This unconventional territoriality that they have. So. Sometimes, you know, we're using these audio lures and we're using Maurice and we think we've got a territorial bird, but a lot of the time you've actually caught dude from like four kilometers down the road. <laughs> You're never going to see him again if you go back to that location. And we really? saw that. So because we didn't know how the tags were going to perform, we mm -hmm. were very conservative in how we scheduled um, the points to collect across the annual cycle. But then we we scheduled them to just take this big data dump once the once we knew the birds were back on the breeding grounds, just to kind of maximize the information we could get out of the tags. And and so we mm -hmm. did get some breeding ground information, and we used that information to try and recover the tags, um, just because we wanted to see if there was more information on the tags. These tags are also reusable um, if you can retrieve them, and so and they're not cheap. Um, and so I tried to recapture tags and most of our collaborators tried as well. And of the 90 something that we put out, we got three. Not, not falling for it. Huh, no, that's so strange two. because usually you can yeah. like, like passerines, yeah. you can usually get back because they come to the same place and, you know, they're susceptible to miss nets, but Nighthawks, yeah, I guess no. that unique way of trying to capture them in the first place yeah. you know, negates any opportunity to, to, to recapture them. And and the ones that we did get back were from individuals where we knew that they were, right? So we yeah. had these breeding ground points that it transmitted and then we went to those locations. And, right. And it, you know, one of the two that I got back, it was still an individual that I had caught three kilometers away. And that's where this <laughs> tracking data was from. Wow. Yeah. So they really moved. He just ended up in this net that I had like opportunistically set up uh, you know, next to the road in, in Cypress Hills, Saskatchewan. So it was like... They're just hard. They're hard birds <laughs> to study, but fascinating and so worth it. Yeah. Do you have any experiences in the field with common Nighthawks that are just really amazing and make you realize that what you're studying is such a such a unique species and, and mm -hmm. difficult species? To be honest, I, I think being up in my sort of core study site is probably that. It, the area where I study them is... So just north of the oil sands, so north of Fort McMurray in Alberta. Mm -hmm. And um, it's this big sort of post-glacial sandy area. There's um, Aeolian sand dunes and it's a post-fire area and mm -hmm. clear cuts. And so it's this sort of like trifecta of nighthawk habitat. And it's just incredibly dense. And because it's so far north, um, you get these long, sort of long drawn out sunsets. And, and as the sun, it starts to get dark. And these nighthawks just come up and they're, they're everywhere. And then as the sun gets darker, the females come off the nest and they forage low. And, and it's just, it's like, it's nighthawk, like nighthawks everywhere. Um, and I, I think just the experience of that 
that density of these birds that you just you just don't know they're there during the day. Like the males are in the trees, you can't see them. The females are nesting on the ground, incubating or rooting, and you can't see them because they're cryptic. And then and all of a sudden they're just everywhere, and it's yeah. a really really cool experience. Hmm. You know, I've seen behaviors that that aren't really documented. So mm-hmm. it's you know they do this. Um, I've only seen it a couple of times, but it seems like a, it's a mating display. The male circles around the female and does these really shallow wing beats. Um, it looks like it looks pretty hard to do, to be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, it, and I think he's trying to show off his pennants, right? But the, it looks yeah. I've seen male common hawks do that as well. Um, wow, that's cool. I, I guess showing off their white wing patches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and they they do this. Um, they do another one where they they sit on a low branch and they make this sort of like frog sound and they bolt huh. out the the neck patch as well so they're they're really capitalizing on their their white patches um yeah for mate attraction. Yeah. and the cool thing is that, that that those those that main attraction and the pair bonding happens through the whole breeding season too and i don't know whether that's a function of the density of the population that i study or not um or just you know like competition for mates is really high um, but they, you know, I've, I've seen these, these pair bonding and these, these mate attraction displays through, you know, through late July, um, which huh. again, is another one of these things that like, it's, it's just really different from pastoral biology. Yeah. There's, there's a certain irony to this idea of this bird being so, you know, widespread across mm-hmm. the continent, but I take to sort of anthropogenically altered landscapes pretty well. And yet we've got this species that has been declining a lot, you know, yeah. pretty rapidly across the North American continent. Why do you think that this, these populations are declining uh, like that in spite of their ability to be, you know, pretty flexible in terms of that, the habitats yeah. that they use? Yeah. I mean, that's a great, that's a great question. They, they certainly do seem to display a lot of plasticity, though there's plasticity in the habitats that they use, like you mentioned, although they do kind of key in on, on mm-hmm. uh, open landscapes and, and they really like pine. Um, but there's, there's, you know, there's plasticity in their diet. There's plasticity, yeah. plasticity in the way that they forage. Um, you know, some birds seem to kind of hang out on territory, like up in the boreal forest where there's, you know, <laughs> there's no shortage of bugs. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, in... in <laughs> sort of grassland areas and area landscapes um you get individuals all congregating on a, on a particular water body and, and foraging together um and they are they do seem to be a fairly aggressive disperser as well so we did mm-hmm. we tagged one individual in in northern alberta um that must have been a floater um because it was an adult male when we tagged him and uh when he came back the next year he actually transmitted gps points from like 250 kilometers northeast wow. Huh. He had gone and set up a territory like way, way, way over in Saskatchewan. So they do seem to have this ability to to disperse. But uh, I, I think we are still seeing these these really steep declines, like you mentioned. And it's possible that that's just a rain shift. You know, mm-hmm. perhaps individuals from southern landscapes are shifting up into laboreal. Um, but we do see phenotypic differences between those populations and and. We, you know, although Western science doesn't know, we're just starting to learn how many individuals are in the boreal. Like I, I mentioned, the, the sort of extreme density where I studied. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, there is a, a word for this species in Woodland Cree, and I'm sure if you spoke to Indigenous peoples, um, that I think these birds have been on the landscape for a long time in the boreal mm-hmm. forest. So assessing a range shift is is difficult, but it is a possibility. 
Um, but it's certainly when you talk to people who have been on southern landscapes for a long time, the, the, the anecdotal reports of the declines of the species are are, are very strong, and and mm-hmm. and those are reflected in the BBS data, which, although is a dawn species, does, yeah. does you know is showing the extreme declines of the species. I, I think perhaps that just speaks to the extent of habitat change on these landscapes and the extent of agricultural intensification. Um, again, you know, teasing apart the declines of this species and other aerial insectivores is very difficult. Yeah. Um, because we just, we don't have information on their food source, you know, especially in North America, we don't have data sets on insect populations. Hmm. And so actually understanding the relationship between food source and bird populations is really difficult. But again, we have these anecdotal reports of extreme insect declines and, yeah. You know, I, I think at a certain at a certain point you can you'd see plasticity in a species, you can see resilience in a species, but it only goes so far. Um, and so we're you know we're still trying to understand whether that's true and and if so, what the drivers are. Ellie Knight is a researcher at the University of Alberta. She's studying migratory connectiveness, uh, specifically with common nighthawks, an amazing species as we've learned. Uh, her paper came out in the journal. Uh, ecography and uh, i'll have a link to that in in the show notes thank you so much ellie i i i'll probably talk about this in in the um, show notes that we had some technical difficulties and I, i'm really thankful for you bearing with us and in, in getting in getting finishing this interview well, my pleasure nate it was yeah it was fun to talk with them once it was fun to talk with them <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Hi, Nate. This is Charlie Hesse from Naturally Adventurous Podcast. Thanks again for coming on the show recently. I just wanted to share with you an old pileated woodpecker story. So there was a group of us, international guides from South America and from Africa and from all over. And we were down in High Island doing some birding down there. And then we drove up to Ohio. And on the way, we stopped over with a good friend of ours in Tennessee, in Nashville. And they took us out birding. And he was asking all these international guides, uh, what birds they wanted to see locally. And one of the guys, a guide from Ecuador, he was super keen to see pileated woodpecker. This guy he said, yeah, it shouldn't be a problem. There's a place, there's a nice big lake surrounded by forest, and uh, you often see them there. So we made a plan to go one morning and walk around the lake. He was an active local birder. And he introduced us to all his birding friends when we were sort of crossing paths. And he was really bigging us up. He was like, oh, these guys, these guys are some of the best. You know, they're amazing birders. They're, one of them would like to see a, a pileated woodpecker, but you've seen one. And everybody we met was like, yeah, yeah, well, just five minutes ago, just down the road, you should get it. And we sort of went along this path going around the lake, and every single person we met had seen it. And then we started meeting non-birders, and we were asking them, you know, did you see a big woodpecker? And there was kind of people jogging. They were like, oh, yeah, yeah, we just saw one back there. And I was like, oh, okay, right. Well, you know, we're being a bit unlucky here. And and then there was a, a young mother pushing her child in a little stroller. And uh, she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I just saw a big woodpecker there. And and no matter how many people we passed, and the time went on and on, and we never saw this thing. And having been bigged up so much and saying what good birders we were, we were starting to feel quite embarrassed by this whole thing. And even without asking people, they were running by and, oh, I just saw a big blackbird with a red head flying by. And it was just getting beyond a joke. I mean, there must have been like 10 sets of people that had seen this bird before us. And we were sort of getting most of the way around the lake. And we were starting to think, we're not going to see this bird. You know, we've, we've dipped on it embarrassingly, especially having been bigged up so much. And then just finally at the end, we, we finally saw this thing. And it was a big relief. 
more to heal our sore egos than anything else. But um, yeah, anyway, that's our pileated woodpecker story from Tennessee. Thanks so much, Charlie. If you have a pileated woodpecker story to share with us for this continuing celebration of our 2021 bird of the year, record it into the voice memo app of your phone. You can even use a fancier method with a USB mic if you like to. I won't, I won't tell you what to do. I'm just giving you the easiest method, but send it to me at podcast.aba.org. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Please consider joining the ABA if you like what we do here. You'll get access to our print publications, discounts to our partners, and our thanks as we build a better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and the world. Get more information about all our memberships, including e-memberships at aba.org join. I want to make some shout out today to William Pixler of Atlanta, Georgia, Travis Sparks of Bodwin, Maine, James Fiermeyer of South Bend, Indiana, David Smith of Mesa, Arizona, Jeremy and Robin Winnick of Westminster, Colorado, Nathan Johnson, and family of Lancaster, New York, Travis Gurgitz and the Gurgitz of Mino, North Dakota, Rebecca Dill of Atlanta, Georgia, Patrick McGovern of Indianapolis, Indiana, Rebecca Holtzclaw of College Station, Texas, Miranda Kohout of Springdale, Arkansas, and Lance Fieber and family of Austin, Texas, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason. I appreciate it so much. Thank you very much. If you have made it this far and you want to help out without becoming a member, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to leave a rating or review of the American Birding Podcast. They certainly help us get our name out there and give us some good feedback from time to time. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. His favorite piece of bird-related art was Vincent Van Gogh's swirling interpretation of a murmuration's shifting shapes that he called the Starling Night. The more famous version without the birds just doesn't do it for it. Technical production is by John Lowry, who, as you would imagine, was quite disappointed that Whistler's arrangement in gray and black number one was just his mom and not a goal identification plate. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who together spent an unseemly amount of money on a Gainsborough painting, thinking that the eponymous blue figure was a J and not a boy. You gotta, you gotta read those things closely. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. Look, I know Claude Monet painted like 200 images of water lilies, but would it have killed him to add a jacana to just one? Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.